Veni, Veni, Venias, and welcome to our podcast. Hello, and welcome to Ask a Medievalist. I'm M, the Ask portion of our program, and joining me tonight, as always, is Dr. Jesse Noose. Hello! So, let's see. Last week, we talked about some early types of heresy, and really, I guess, sort of the larger development of the idea of heresy. And tonight, we're going to get into everybody's favorites, the proto-Protestant heresies, which... Um, how would you how would you define them? It it sounds like sort of ideas that would be called Protestantism had they existed on the far side of of uh, Martin Luther. Kind of. Um, really, what this is is it's meant to show the development of ideas, right? So the same way last time I think we talked about proto orthodoxies, mm-hmm. and the question was how does orthodoxy um, come to be? How is it defined? Yes, right. And that in some ways, before you get a certain, well, I mean, essentially before you get to the Nicene Council, the first one, <laughs> um, that there isn't really orthodoxy yet, right? No one has, people have certainly been defining it. Lots and lots of people have been defining what they think is Christianity, but there has not been a group consensus. Mm-hmm. It's all sort of like, that's just your opinion, man. Yes. Um, and even once there is a consensus, um, even once there is a consensus that essentially, of course, orthodoxy is defined kind of by the group that has the most votes. Um, and okay, so sure. we discussed how frequently after a council, I don't know, frequently, but I mean, it happens a lot. Um, there'd be a schism, essentially. Mm-hmm. Right. So someone would break off because, um, you know, they, they would have had not enough votes to change things, but they weren't going to go along because they didn't believe it. Right. Right. Um, so you start to get like the Assyrian church where you start to get these schisms. Um, and then, of course, eventually we get the big one, the East West one. Um, and that's the one most people think of. But many, many had happened already. Right. And mm-hmm. we talked about a lot of them last time. Um and so the interesting thing is that once we get east-west, um, and I think we said this last time as well, and this is something we might have a whole episode about, there, there are some big changes that happen in the West. Um, one of them is celibacy, is um, clerical celibacy, so that priests mm-hmm. can't marry. Um, and of course, a lot of people, I think, don't realize that one of the reasons why you can get married in the East and you can't in the West is because that happened after they'd split. Aha. Uh-huh. But there are other things that happen. And so we sort of talked about the, like, the Cathars, right? So this rise sort of of the heresies after that split um, for various reasons. Um, Also, I think the sort of resurgence, there's a crusade. But there's tons of stuff written about this, right? But you do get the Mm -hmm. crusades as well. Um, So there is a bit of a um, rise. And this would also go, we mentioned last time, I think, more. The, I always get the title of this wrong, but it's something like the formation of a persecuting society. R.I. Moore. Um, I mean, he has tons of books, but that's sort of the big one. Um, and the ways in which um, we start to get a lot of the things that we think of. For example, the Inquisition. <laughs> right. Um, so you start to get really um, bureaucratic machines, right? The bureaucratic mm-hmm. machine of the state um, or at the church. 
They were very that, similar at that point. Yes. Um, and the idea, essentially, yes, that this bureaucratic um, sort of <laughs> machine um, had same as, right, you might fight a war against an ally who's encroaching on your borders, um, that this was to be done for belief as well. Mm -hmm. And this is something we take sort of for granted today, that that is a thing that happens, obviously. Um, you know, crusade is a, a term we use, even when we're not talking about, like, actual crusades, right? We sort of use it as a metaphor or an allegory, um, or just as a sort of lowercase word, I guess. Yeah. Um, so... That, that sensibility, right? Um, the rise in the Crusades, right? So Islam, um, the rise, so the sort of, right, Christianity fighting Islam, along with the schism between sort of the Eastern Church and the Western Church, um, what we sort of know today as Eastern Orthodox, and of course, Catholicism, all of these things, there starts to be a very bureaucratic sense about how you sort of go about maintaining belief the way you want it. And for I think for a variety of reasons, right? So the rise of Islam is one of them, but certainly the split between East and West is another. A number of things come along, and this is what I said, like all these other people have written about, right? There are tons of theories about why and what happened, and anti-Semitism gets wrapped into these as well. Mm -hmm. um, but essentially, right, you have this um, rise in <laughs> machinery of various state power types of things, um, deciding that they are going to treat belief very much like a physical territory. Mm -hmm. And that, of course, um, you know, there's been stuff against heresy before, obviously. But all of this is a little bit new, right? There's the sense, for some reason now, maybe because suddenly you're losing territory, <laughs> right? Yeah. There's this sudden sense sort of um, that you really have to keep what you have. Mm-hmm. So the it's, Catholic... It's like, um, we use the term Christendom, right? In in older manuscripts, I guess. Manuscripts is mm -hmm. not the right word. But, you know, like this idea that there's some sort of a united country of Christianity, all mm -hmm. of Christendom. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, of course, it, it's not. I mean, this is kind of the problem, right? <laughs> um, it's yeah. very, very fragmented and becomes increasingly fragmented, right? Um and defining, and of course, in some ways, that's the inevitable result of defining orthodoxy, mm -hmm. right? Is that people who don't agree with you are going to go a different way and have a different sense of what they think of as orthodox, right? But that at some point, um, there's sort of this feeling like you can't divide the world anymore. <laughs> so you got to keep what you have. Um, or just in some way, I mean, but a lot of this is also territorial, geographically. Mm -hmm. So um, so sort of speaking, like the Assyrian church, that various areas of the Middle East and North Africa, some of those can sort of split off because geographically they, like, they are already, they are their own territories and so then they can have their own church. Mm -hmm. um, East and West, the same thing happens, right? Um, in some ways, of course, what happens in the West is this tension between, and we're going to talk a little bit about this, but um, it becomes a tension between, yes, Christianity theoretically unifying what we today would call Western Europe, and the fact that, of course, politically, Western Europe is a big old mess, right? <laughs> um, and obviously remains a big old mess, uh, I mean, at least 
<laughs> through the end of World War II and the Cold War. Um, and we're going to yeah. talk about, like, Czech, the Czech people, I guess, Bohemia today. Um, but of course, for a while, that's Czechoslovakia. And then, of course, it's not anymore. So mm-hmm. Europe kind of remains a bit of a mess, right? The EU. Britain's trying to, or left it, or whatever, you know. But, okay, so um, the the sense of Europe, right, it is politically very fragmented and has been. Mm-hmm. The fact that by the end of, that actually within the Middle Ages, that England and France will emerge as countries is really kind of astonishing. Um, England is doing its own thing. But France, as we pointed out last time, actually part of the reason it emerges as a country is because the fight against heresy, specifically the Cathars, known as the Albigensians because of Albion, France, southern France, mm-hmm. um, that ends up stomping out a lot of the actual secular powers, right, who support them. So like the Count of Toulouse. Um, and so there's this power vacuum <laughs> that the king, who's not the king of all of France, right, steps into, basically. Yeah. So this is kind of how we get France unified as a country, is the fight really because of the fight against heresy. Um, and so there is this reminder that the tension between trying to keep Western Europe, as we would define it today, unified in the church, right? The, the Pope wants a unified territory. Mm-hmm. But politically, this territory is a huge, giant mess. And so that's the other side, really. And one of the reasons why the machine of the state, whether that be secular or spiritual, right? So the church or a king or a count, whoever, but right, why the machines sort of of the state, instit- uh, institutional inquisitions, basically, mm-hmm. um, why these arise, because a lot of it really is also very political. Um, and it is very much about this tension. <laughs> and so there, one of the fears is definitely that if a heresy is to take hold in one of these areas, that it will be lost not just to the Pope or, you know, but um, that it will then become its own sort of unique ally in ways that the powers around it want to stop, of course. Right. Right. Um, I mean, in some ways it's similar to guilds, right? Like we sort of talked about how you set up a guild and then you sort of say, nobody else can do my thing. Everybody, you have to either join the guild or you can't be bacon bread or whatever. Right. Um, right. because you kind of want all of the people's money and whatever to flow through you. And, mm-hmm. you know, it it's a little yep. bit cynical to be like, the church wants your tithes, but they do. Like, the Catholic Church amassed mm-hmm. a huge amount of money and power. Yeah. And I'm sure that they're not anxious to share that with competition. Yeah, and also, of course, temporal powers, right, um... All of the political mess, right, the so temporal secular powers, that mess, they all kind of always know where the church is, right? The church Mm -hmm. is a hierarchy. Um, They don't always agree with each other, but like, you know where the archbishop in your territory or the archbishops, depending on how big your territory is, um, you know where they stand, Mm -hmm. right? You know where they are, who they're aligned with politically, probably who they're related to. I mean, they (laughs) aren't related probably to you if you're the ruler. Right. Um... So you know where they're aligned. You know where they are aligned with the rest of the church hierarchy and the Pope, right? So that's all something you can figure out very easily. 
Now, the thing is, of course, and one of the reasons that heresy is such a big deal, this is why, of course, stumping out Toulouse is, um, I mean, it's not as a city, mm-hmm. but kind of. We actually talked <laughs> about that. I mean, the not yeah. Toulouse specifically, but the, yeah, the um, Albigensian Crusade against the Cathars was really horrific, right? Um, and per- possibly genocide, depending on how you define it, but it's perfectly reasonable to kind of call it one. Um, but the point is that... Yeah, um, that was sort of the big problem, right? Is suddenly you had nobles who were going to embrace this. And that's dangerous because now they are taking, it's not just sort of church money, because the church doesn't mind paying off nobles at certain points, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) But suddenly they are taking themselves out of this alliance, right? And if they can do that, if Toulouse leaves the church and the count, right? Because the count wants it to, then the count and that, if they're aligned, who knows how that's going to start reshaping alliances, right? Mm-hmm. Um, what's interesting is that the kings of France at the time, the sort of Capetian dynasty there, right, um, sort of starting with Philip, right, a number of them end up part of this crusade. But starting with Philip, he doesn't, he's not super interested in prosecuting this crusade. He's mm-hmm. got other things to do, mostly the English. The interesting thing is that, of course, he's the one who ultimately benefits. Well, his line. They are yeah. the ones who ultimately benefit from it. Um, because of the power vacuum, right? As I said, that, that they can kind of step in. Um, but there is something, yeah, that's a, a reminder of how that works. And the unintended consequences, then, of what happened. Which is that it ended up sort of helping France unify as a country. Luckily for the church, France does end up basically remaining Catholic, and of course is technically to this day. Um, But it does definitely shift alliances. And of course, and so that's the the big fear, really. Um, And that's, so this is always also political. And that's what happens. And obviously, um, so proto-Protestant beliefs are beliefs that do become part of Protestantism, Mm -hmm. Luther and others. Um, But also, of course, Right, Germany is split today between, I mean, Luther, right? Between Catholic right. and Lutheran. And it's a noticeable divide, culturally and in a lot of other ways. Yeah. England, of course, will eventually become Protestant. Um, and that is, of course, extremely political, their separation from yes. the church. So, yeah, I mean, that's, so that's really, that's why heresy is stamped out. That's why the crusade against the Cathars, right? It's not just, I mean, it's, you know, it's a horrific thing to go off and kill Christians, but um, the reason, of course, is always political, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and the later events sort of demonstrate why, right? Ultimately, what will happen, um, even in a Catholic country like Italy, right, eventually the Pope will be relegated to just the Vatican and the Basilica of St. Francis at Assisi. Yes. Um, but basically, right, the Pope loses temporal territory, right? So no more physical, geographical land mm-hmm. to rule. No more papal states. Yes. Um, and that is... So you just get the spiritual domain. Um, and, you know, this is, of course, what the Pope is trying to avoid, what the Popes generally are. <laughs> One of the things that they're trying to avoid with a lot of this. And that's why one of the big things, these proto-Protestant heresies as they come up, one of the things that they are about is that they tend to be Mm anti-clerical. And this is actually sort of where we're going to start. 
uh, we're going to start with the Waldensians, who aren't necessarily really proto-Protestant in any way, um, which is to say they're fairly orthodox. <laughs> but there are a few important ways in which they, first of all, become sort of categorized as heretics. Um, but secondly, they will sort of herald um, some of the things that are going to be problematic okay. in the future. Yeah. Um, so the Waldensians um, are founded in the mid-1170s by Waldes or Valdes, or sometimes Waldo. Oh. Yes. I was wondering if it was the same as Walden Pond, but it sounds like maybe not. Sadly, no. No. <laughs> Waldes. Yeah. Or okay. Valdes. Um, but he dies between 1205 and 1218. <laughs> it's a little unclear. Okay. But, um, but anyway, he founds this in sort of the mid-1170s. Um, he's now commonly referred to as Peter Waldes, or Peter Waldo, or Pierre, because he's mm -hmm. French, sort of from Lyon. Um, but the Peter probably comes from, this was probably not his original given name, um, and comes from the fact that his followers viewed him as the new Peter, right? St. Peter, the first okay. pope. The first the rock. pope. Yes, you know, the rock on whom, rock being, of course, a pun. Petrus. <laughs> because it means, uh, yes, um, on which I will build my church. Yeah, so that, so the Peter, so he's now known as Peter, but this probably is not really his name, but that's okay. Mm -hmm. Anyway. So he's he's a rich dude, basically, living in Lyon, France. Um, and he here's the story of Saint Alexis, um, who's the son of a rich Roman and um who decides, you know, is called by God essentially, and heads off to live an ascetic life as basically a hermit, you know. Um and many years later Oh, and maybe he leaves on his wedding night or something. He escapes on his wedding night or something. Mm. Um, yes. So usually it's women who do that. But in this case, yeah. it's a guy. Um, okay, and cool. he returns. Yeah, exactly. Right. He returns um, years later. He's unrecognizable. Nobody knows who he is. Um, and he dies begging outside his father's house. Um, and he is unrecognized and blah, blah. Um, of course, Clearly, somebody ultimately recognized him because he got a hagiography, hey, but we ignore those hmm. contradictions. Anyway, and the point is, of course, right, um, that he, he of course, becomes a saint, right, um, mm -hmm. because he has done, you know, the ultimate sort of, right, given up everything to the point that, you know, his rich family um, <laughs> doesn't doesn't recognize him, wouldn't have anything to do with him begging outside there. Mm -hmm. But he, of course, is the real saintly one, and they are, you know, terrible rich people, essentially. Um, all right, so, and it's also, I mean, obviously it's a kind of spin on the prodigal son, who in that case goes off and spends all the money and comes home poor and is welcomed, right? This is kind of the reverse. Right. Where, um, okay, so Wallace hears this story, and decides that he is also called. Um, and so he provides for his wife and dowries for his daughters who maybe end up entering the local convent or nearby convent. Um, and then he throws the rest of his money into the streets, <laughs> perhaps okay. literally. And yeah, goes off to live an aesthetic lifestyle. All right. So he's not from a dogmatic standpoint. So we've been talking about belief. Mm -hmm. Um, from a dogmatic standpoint, he's not really heretical. 
Right. Unlike the Cathars, who are dualist. I mean, so they are. But he runs afoul of orthodoxy for other reasons. <laughs> right? And this is sort of the problem, obviously. And this is what happens. This is where a lot of proto-Protestant stuff gets going. I mean, a lot of heresies that aren't proto a lot of heresies generally, but certainly a lot of the proto-Protestant ones at this point, um, where they really get going is um, basically this sense that the church has become corrupt. Mm -hmm. um, it's lost its way compared to sort of Jesus and the apostles being poor and preaching and trying to save people that the church is now, right, it's a huge power. It's right. a wealthing land, right? It's amassing wealth and land, a wealthing. <laughs> it's amassing wealth and land and power and luxury. Think of, you know, if yeah. you ever go to the Vatican, whatever, all the... <laughs> yeah. <I> mean, <laughs> they didn't get Michelangelo to paint the ceiling for, you know, cheap. For cheap, cheap. Right. Yeah. Um, These I mean, are oh complaints yeah. about the Catholic Church that come up in the 95 Theses, too, I think. Indeed. Yes. And I mean, and this is the thing, right? Of course, it's not wrong. Mm -hmm. um, it, there's, yeah, why doesn't all this money go to the poor? Um, there's a movie, In the Shoes of the Fisherman, I think it's called, um, okay. that sort of deals with this idea as well. Um, that's a lot of fun. I super recommend it. It's a very sweet movie. Um, but the, it's 1968 in the Shoes of the Fisherman, and it stars Anthony Quinn. Anyway. Okay. Um, yeah, it's a lot of fun. But, um, there's, oh, and Olivier's in it, you know, it's got it. Yeah. <laughs> it's all of these things. Gil good. Anyway, yeah, it's a, it's a lot of fun. But the, the point really is, right, in the Shoes of the Fisherman, the point is, what if the Pope were to, um, really try to behave more like <laughs> the apostles, right? Um, and more than that, of course, like, what if the Vatican, like, really gave its money to the poor? Right. Look at all the gold. Look at all this. I mean, my God, right? The Pieta. Like, think of the money that is in the... So, um, what if you could get into the Vatican museums for free? I don't know. Anyway, I just put that out there. So... Here the well, we got to keep buying plumes for the Swiss guards, and that costs a lot of money. Yes, etc. So, um, anyway, so this is sort of the point, right? And, um, yeah, obviously this resonates with a lot of people. And this is even back then. This is the 1170s. So this was a long time ago. Um, 900 years or so. Um, and, you know, it, of course, also rings true today. But, um, yeah, that this is sort of the idea. So... This is the point. Um, and the whole sensibility, right, of um, this apostolic life, essentially. The thing is, of course, so um, the, the whole thing kind of comes from Matthew. So, and, you know, Valdes doesn't come up with this. I mean, this has obviously been around. Um, people, Other people have said this. You know, even the Cathars, like a lot of heresies do include asceticism, in their ideas, because this is one of the big things that bothers them. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and so um, in Matthew, Matthew 10, basically, um, there are instructions. They start at verse five, but the, the key ones are nine and 10. Um, and Jesus sends out the apostles to preach. Right. Um, and the key points here are, <laughs> um, do not get any gold or silver or copper to take with you in your belts, no bag for the journey or extra shirt or sandals or a staff 
um, for the worker is worth his keep. All right. But the point is, right, <laughs> um, you don't get any money to take with you. You don't get like a money bag in your belt or a bag for your journey. You don't get an extra shirt, you know, sandals, staff, right? You don't get, I don't know, you don't get a travel bag <laughs> in right. case you, in case your sandals break or whatever. You don't get no an extra pair. of baggage. Right. Um, and you think of like the stereotype of like the bindle, right? With mm-hmm. the, you know, um, where you assume like you have an extra pair of shoes and a shirt and whatever tied up there. <laughs> um, no, no, you don't get that extra, no. None of that. Like, if you if your shirt actually falls off, then you'll find a way or whatever. But mm-hmm. um, so this is the part. So this uh, in the I mean, this is right in the Gospels. And so this instruction is the sort of apostolic life that a lot of people, including all this, are looking at. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the Valdensians are kind of like this. These were the original instructions. <laughs> Look at how far the church has fallen, essentially, is their idea. Um, this is not good. All right. Um, next up is actually, they're also really big on kind of wandering preachers and itinerant preaching. Um, because one of the, again, right, the whole point is that Jesus sends out the apostles to preach. Um, so that uh, you should be out yeah, there. Yeah, there's the whole fishers of men thing, right? Go yeah. find people. Yes. And so that idea that you should be out there with the people. You shouldn't be waiting in your church for them to come to you. Um, and then give you money, right? Because <laughs> like tithing and all that. Um, mm-hmm. You should be out there preaching to them. Go out into the streets, preach to them. Um, talk to them. Get to know them. Obviously, people liked this a lot, right? Um, because people, you know, being paid attention to. Having mm-hmm. people come up and want to talk to you. Um, okay, so this is something else that they're into. <laughs> um, the problem is... This is where we start to get, right, it's not exactly dogma, but there are other things that are problematic. Um, and so canon law states, and canon law, of course, is what we get from all these ecclesiastical councils we've talked about, where you get orthodoxy. Um, you get them other place, but I mean, this is, you know, that's where our canon kind of starts originally. That's where we get what we consider the canon at the first Nicene Council, Really, right? And then we, and then of course we add to it and popes write things and everybody's writing things. But, um, all right. So canon law states that only clerics are allowed to preach, right? You have to be ordained. Um, and so, you know, well, that's why women don't get to do it. Right. Because women can't be ordained. Yeah. This is, of course, also, I mean, something that Protestants don't necessarily agree with. We saw the Cathars let women preach. Others mm-hmm. will see a lot of our proto Protestant heresies do let women preach. And this is one of those things. Um, Valdensians do let women preach. Um, and, of course, a lot of Protestants today let women preach. Yeah. Right? Um, the ordination of women is not strictly outlawed by the Gospels. That is one of the things that has made orthodoxy later, right? So, yeah. So that's absolutely one of these things. Um, so, Valdensians believe anyone can preach, and that includes women basically. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So that is the sort of thing that tends to make authorities nervous, right? Um, Because obviously one of the reasons for not letting anyone preach is that you're trying to control the message. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is not just, again, about belief. It is also political. It is both of those things, right? Um, It's why sort of in England, you know, whatever religion you were, (laughs) so even like eventually when England's Protestant, 
um, you know, you aren't supposed to be Catholic, but really you get in trouble if you don't go to Protestant services. Mm. Is the problem. Like, you can be Catholic. If you go to Protestant services, nobody really cares. It's if you don't that people start to care. And again, it's the same thing as Romans don't care if you don't believe in any of their gods and you only want to believe in your one god. But they do care if you're not willing to sort of sacrifice and do the stuff that the state requires you. Right? Mm-hmm. We talked last time about sort of community toss and, right, that the whole point is you are proving that you're a good member of the community. And if you're not willing to do that, then there's a problem. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so that is usually the problem. Um, and so here we have, right, if people are just out randomly preaching things um, and the message is not controlled, then who knows what's happening to our citizens, right? Are we inciting revolt or whatever? Um, so these are the problems. Anyway, so um, our next council that we're going to talk about, we've talked about a lot of them, but um, Lateran, the third Lateran council in 1179, uh, Pope Alexander III decides uh, that Valdensians, well, decrees, apparently, um, that Valdensians and other non-clergy basically can't preach unless they're asked by local clergy, which is a way of kind of um, probably smart people thought at the time to get around the issue that some really popular preachers weren't ordained and were very popular. And part of the popularity was that they were anti-clerical. And I suppose the idea is like, if you could get them on your side, Mm -hmm. then, you know, you could give them special permission to preach and you could kind of control it. Sure. Um, So the idea that like, theoretically people who aren't ordained can preach if clergy let them. The interesting thing is, of course, that's also an acknowledgement that people who aren't ordained can preach potentially. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but anyway, so um, that, of course, ends up not, it doesn't really matter because it's not like they stop. It's not like they get permission. It's certainly not like they stop. <laughs> um, so, but one of the important things actually is that um, the Valdensians, the Valdes himself, are against the Cathars, right? So they do not believe in dualism. They are against the Cathars, and they may have wanted to preach partly against them, like to help preach against them. So that's sort of why, theoretically, they it may have been seen as possible to have them on the side of the church. Um, the problem is, I mean, they really are fairly orthodox, <laughs> but they are not clerics. They do not want to be. They want anyone to be able to preach. Valdes wants to preach... Valdensians want anyone sort of to be able to preach. Obviously, that's not really ultimately going to fly. Right. Um, and it's worth pointing out that he has a lot in common, really, with Francis of Assisi, mm-hmm. who's going to become St. Francis, um, who a few decades later is going to do something very similar, right? Francis is the son of a rich guy. Um, he has a change of heart. He, like, throws off his stuff in the street, basically, um, denounces his father, strips himself. The, you know, bishop gives him a robe. Um this is, of course, the story. Anyway, um, but Francis will then go to the Pope and ask for permission to form a new order, thereby putting his order under the authority of the Pope and sort of acknowledging that hierarchy of the mm-hmm. church, even though he obviously pushes the boundaries. And after his death, we will actually get to this. There will be some problems. Yeah. Um, but he does find a way to... Yeah, he pushes a lot of buttons, he pushes a lot of boundaries, mm-hmm. um, but he, and he also wants to live the apostolic life, right? Um, but he 
does sort of acknowledge that authority. Mm-hmm. Um, the Waldensians are ultimately excommunicated basically for defying that authority. Right there. They insist on preaching. Um, they allow women to preach. Women who consider themselves Waldensians or who are Waldensians are still preaching even as late as like the end of the 15th century. Wow. Yeah. So they keep going. Um, and this is also important because the Cathars, right, there's the crusade against them. They're fairly stamped out. Um, it means no one else is really going to be stamped out to the same degree. Although groups do get shut down, but they're going to be pockets of them sort of around. Um, one of the other things that, is important that is what ties them in a bit to proto-Protestant. So first of all, the idea that women can preach, obviously that is going to be one of the things that Protestant groups to this day will frequently agree with. <laughs> um, but another one of the big ones is the fact that uh, Valdis is also invested in vernacular translations of the scripture. Aha. Uh-huh. It is worth pointing out that this is not explicitly forbidden. Um, mm-hmm. And Innocent III does not ban it at the fourth letter in council. Um, and that's always the sort of point of contention. The idea you weren't supposed to have, you know, that's actually not true. It is not banned. But authorities are worried about it. Because, again, it puts all this knowledge into the hands of people who may misuse it. Right? So um, these are the sort of dangers that are seen. Uh, but anyway, the Valdensians spread around. They do spread around French-speaking areas as well as German-speaking areas. Uh, French-speaking areas, of course, also a lot of Cathars. And really, it's the German-speaking areas, especially kind of the Alps, where Valdensians are going to be and going to stay. Okay. They're going to pretty much hang out there. Um, as time goes on, they do become much more clearly kind of heretical. They become very strongly anti-clerical. They were clearly already anti-clerical. But um, that becomes a very primary sort of sticking point, um, that they're anti-clericalness. Um, and they do not believe in purgatory, which is another hop, skip, and a jump on our way towards proto-Protestant beliefs. Um, the, the decision that purgatory isn't really a thing. <laughs> uh, purgatory is very important, obviously, uh, right. in the sort of Catholic worldview. Um yeah, so the, this is another important thing. It is, of course, heretical. This is where we start to get into dogma a bit. Um, and yeah, that's that's a, a move on that path towards sort of the Protestant, proto-Protestant ideas. So that's the Valdensians. Eventually, okay. I mean, so yeah, I mean, they're condemned, excommunicated, this various stuff. But really, yes, they are kind of stamped out. They're, I mean, there are attempts to stamp them out. But ultimately, they kind of keep going. You know, they aren't fully eradicated. There's still some women preaching, as I said, kind of as late as the end of the 15th century. So they're still kind of around. Um, they kind of remain around. I think actually they're people who consider themselves Waldensians, maybe even today, kind of, in areas. So um, they never fully disappear. Um, yeah, so they're out there. We are now, I'm going to say, kind of skipping. We mentioned the Franciscans. We're kind of skipping some really interesting stuff that happens kind of from the mid-1200s into the 13, a couple decades of the 1300s. Um, and that is that, so having mentioned St. Francis, of course, uh, the first rule he comes up with for his life, we've talked about this before, but it is denied because um, it's he just quotes, I mean, he basically quotes like that section of Matthew and some other stuff. He's just quoting straight out of the 
um, gospels, right? And he, right. it's just like Jesus's instructions. Um, and that's denied. And then he comes back with something that's a little bit different. Um, and some people point out that you can't really deny it because then you're saying that it's impossible to live like the apostles. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, and that's not a good look. So um, it's eventually okayed. But after his death, <laughs> what's going to happen is there is going to be a kind of split. And the Franciscans, it's known as the spirituals versus the conventuals. And it's sort of wrapped up with Joachim of Fiori, uh, who's 1135 to 1202. And Joachim is, is kind of his own thing. He comes up with, he's a visionary. He has visions. Uh, he comes up with some weirdly wonderful stuff. Um, but he also ends up influencing some of the Franciscans, the spirituals specifically, who are the ones who end up really um, feeling that the order is departing from um, what Francis wanted, right? So, you know, this is what happens. You come up with an ascetic lifestyle, but then it's hard to have a like an order that's growing and full of people and keep that lifestyle, right? Mm -hmm. Because you... Like, you end up needing probably a monastery or something. And so then you're like, well, then you have a, you're owning a big old building. Right. And then you gotta, like, probably work it. Do you need people who help you work the land? And Okay. So we're starting to run into these problems. I, I want to mention that although it's um, fiction, the name of the rose talks yes. about a lot of these problems and... I may have mentioned it before. There's sort of a, a book of notes called uh, "The Key to the Name of the Rose," where they they go through and discuss a lot of the problems about, you know, as an order, do we own all of our clothes and stuff collectively, or do we have to? Everybody owns their robe individually. Yes. Um, and it it sounds really weird that you know that that things would be legislated at that level, but oh yeah. You They're know. actually legislated even beyond that because um, the Vatican had agreed that they officially owned everything that the Franciscan order used, mm -hmm. which is why the one thing they still own, well, the one thing the Pope still controls outside of the Vatican is the Basilica of St. Francis at Assisi. Aha. Yeah. Um, because that was sort of this agreement. Um, because that way Franciscans never owned anything because the Vatican owned anything and they only had the use of it. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. Um, so, <laughs> um, the spiritual Franciscans here are, this is, you know, they're going to feel that, I mean, they do feel that this, that they're falling, right? That their order is falling from its ideal. And um, other stuff is going to happen. Like I said, they are going to, track a little bit into various types of heresies, perhaps. Um, and ultimately, <laughs> um, Pope John the 22nd in 1323 um, is going to issue a bull. Uh, we should point out, by the way, that Fourth Lateran in 1215, the Fourth Lateran Council in 1215, um, is going to have some stuff to say about Joachim. Um, and the thing is that, I, like I said, Joachim is really doing his own thing, but he is going to influence some of these Franciscans who sort of really take out his visions as meaning that they are right and that all this sort of stuff going on. And um, yeah, what ends up happening is that basically 
Um, Pope John the Twenty Second issues this bull, decreeing um, it's cum inter nonolus, and it decrees that it, it's heretical to believe that Christ and the apostles didn't own anything individually or in common. Mm-hmm. So it's basically going to declare that what is defined as the apostolic life is heretical. It's heretical to believe in that. So the very uh-huh. thing that originally, when Francis brought up his rule, people were like, we can't say that that's not possible because it has to be possible, is now going to be considered like heretical. It's heretical to believe that they didn't own anything individually or in common. There's a big question. Does this directly contradict Pope Nicholas III, who in 1279 <laughs> issued a, a bull, um, exit, um, or longer, right, exit, um, that basically is kind of the justification for the Franciscan order and all of the stuff. Um, so, I mean, and this is a debate that is ongoing. Um, there are many people who do see them to be directly in contradiction, that basically Nicholas says that this is the apostolic life and you know, but then there are people who sort of find ways not to. Anyway, but that's the idea, is that there is potentially a straight-up contradiction here. Um, Has anybody and that, asked the current pope what he thinks? Out of curiosity. Oh, well, yeah, um, I would say that the apostolic life has kind of been reinstated with this definition, because mm-hmm. the Franciscan order kind of got itself in, you know, Bonaventure gets put in charge, and they kind of kind of whips him into shape. <laughs> and so they because they and they try to get rid of all this earlier stuff. He mm-hmm. writes a definitive life of Francis, so they try to get rid of all the stuff that doesn't seem look orthodox. And they make sure basically from then on to try and keep just the right side of apostolic life. Um and I would say that to this day, the problem is that contradiction really still exists. That you mm-hmm. you have to be able to define the apostolic life that way without but also acknowledging that it the church can't live up to it. <laughs> But you don't want to acknowledge that the church can't live up to it. Oh, so what are you going to do? So anyway, that tension is still there, basically. Um, The other thing, though, that happens is that also a bull is passed that um, returns everything that the Vatican had held for the Franciscans to the Franciscans. Oh, no. So now they, yes, so now they own it all. (laughs) Um, But obviously it didn't fully return everything because, I mean, the Pope ends up, does own the Basilica at St. Francis. Mm-hmm. Of St. Francis in Assisi. Yeah. So, um, anywho. Yeah. So, um, so there is an attempt basically to really to smack down the Franciscan order. Um, unfortunately. But yes. So mm-hmm. that's a whole thing that happens. The, that, as I said, in a lot of ways, all of that is separate, right? This is very ecclesiastical. This is sort of internal <laughs> struggles. But what is important about that to our conversation is obviously the apostolic lifestyle part, right? Yes. Is this or isn't it possible? Is it or isn't it heretical (laughs) to do this? How poor is it okay to be? (laughs) Yes, exactly. Um, And that is the thing, of course, proto-Protestant heresies are going to keep going with this, right? Um, So Fourth Lateran in 1215, we've mentioned it a few times already. Uh, Pope Innocent III is the one who convokes it. It is, of course, like... The third Lateran Council held in the Lateran Palace in Rome. Um, oh, is that why they're called that? Yes. I mean, every council gets named after where it is, right? So uh. Nicaea, the Nicene Council, um, et cetera, et cetera. So you get named after wherever you are. Yes. And so there there were four in the Lateran Palace. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah. 
Um, so this is the fourth one. I mean, okay. there have been... A, this is the fourth one. There had already been three. <laughs> um, is my point there. Whatever I said. Yeah. We talked about the third one, actually, earlier a little bit. Um, so now in the fourth one, the fourth one is the big one. This is the one everybody knows, because this is the one that decides transubstantiation. Um, Ooh, this is the one that yeah. says transubstantiation is the thing that happens, right? So at mass, at the, the moment literal, of... Yes. Literal sense. Yes. When the priest says the words, the bread and the wine literally become the body and blood of Christ. Yeah. Um, and that, of course is ultimately <laughs> one of the foundational aspects to the proto-Protestant heresies that are coming and Protestantism in general. That is one of the defining differences between Protestant sects, all of them, <laughs> and Catholicism, right? There yeah. are many, many different types of Protestant Christianity, but this is one thing they have in common, <laughs> <laughs> um, is that Catholicism believes in transubstantiation and Protestantism does not, right? The idea is that um, it is essentially allegorical, right? It's symbolic. Sure. Um, and of course, that is sort of the thing, right? 1215, we've talked about this before because a lot of women get deeply involved in this because um, a lot of people don't believe in transubstantiation and they are not going to be convinced. And there are a lot of women who come forward uh, female spirituality really has a high point for a couple hundred years mm -hmm. where women become deeply ingrained in sort of the battle to help people believe this. <laughs> yes. Um, I want to say we talked about this. This is related to the Festival of Corpus Christi. Yep. And it might have been episode six. Ooh, we'll have to look so that up. We'll have to look it up. Like, yeah. Check the notes. Yes, but definitely. Um, yeah. Juliana of Montcoyon uh, comes up with the Feast of Cor Corpus Christi. That is her feast. She founds it. Um, you know, the Pope, of course, Urban IV is the one who really creates it. But but it is hers. Um, she dies before he officially creates it. So he sends word to her longtime companion and probable hagiographer, um, Eve of St. Martin. Um, yeah, so she's a big part of it. Um, a, a, but a lot of women really become part of this sort of movement, right? Um, and this is because female spirituality... The body of Christ, interestingly, is seen as female in many ways because it comes from Mary, right? The spirit obviously yes. came from the father, <laughs> right? But the physical body came from Mary. Uh, and so women have this connection to the body. This is also because, of course, the sexism of all of this, the idea that women are the flesh, right? That the mind is masculine, but the flesh is feminine. We have talked about how Hildegard kind of flips that with anima, the soul, being female. Um, but in this case, women embrace the idea that they are the body, because then it connects them to the body of Christ, and therefore to the Eucharist and transubstantiation. So women become a very, very powerful force in this fight. Um, and after a couple hundred years, when the church feels they've kind of won, um, women kind of get shut up again. But <laughs> um, of course, kind of won is really the ultimate point here, because, you know, it never goes away. There are always people who do not believe in transubstantiation, and eventually we will have that split with Protestantism. Yeah. But it's so fourth ladder in 1215, that's where this all, that's where this part of it starts. Um, yay! All right. So, um, we want to give a big shout out to England. England has been missing from most of this conversation. They're off in the boondocks. They're doing their own thing. They're a little island. Um, the Cathars kind of showed up there. We talked about a few Cathars got showed up there and they mostly got killed. Um, 
you know, <laughs> England's been just kind of shuttling along. And suddenly, boom, they get in big trouble. Um, so <laughs> this is big trouble before Henry VIII, though. Yes. Like, this is a pre-Henry VIII heresy. This is way pre-Henry VIII. But this is, this is sort of the big thing, right? Um, and this is why it's, it's sort of so interesting, right? Because they, they've gone all this time with not having kind of homegrown heresies that they've really noticed anyway. Mm -hmm. Um, certainly nothing big. And anything that sort of came in from the outside, they're a tiny little island, they stomp it out. Um, but suddenly, <laughs> there is displeasure in the ranks. Um, it's clearly around. It's sort of in the air. People are reading stuff from the continent. They know what's been going on. They've been reading different things. So um, English spirituality is starting to take off. Mm -hmm. And um, John Wycliffe, who's circa 1330 to 1384, when he dies, um, he is going to grab this kind of at the height, basically. Um, his followers ultimately are called Wycliffeites or Lollards, which is the well-known turn for them. He's probably born okay. in Yorkshire. Um, so we can say he's from Yorkshire, probably, but he spends most of his life in Oxford. That That's his adult place. That is where uh, Lollardy is going to be formed and kind of born, and that is where it's going to be associated most. Um He's a lecturer at Oxford. He becomes very influential. Um, Edward III gives him a parish that he actually holds until his death, which is important. Oh. Um, he maintains his connection with Oxford until 1381, actually, three years before his death. Um, but he got some stuff to say. So here we go. All right. Um, property can only be held by the righteous. <laughs> this is this is a big one. He goes wow. straight. He really goes straight for the jugular here. Mm -hmm. All right. So he says God bestows it basically as a loan on those who are worthy. It is not due to the authority of office. So just because you're king or pope doesn't give you dominion over your lands. Mm. If you are righteous, then you earn it. <laughs> um, that's a thing to say, right? Yeah. Because. What? Um, now, there are, for various reasons, secular authorities really like this. Mm -hmm. Because, right, it is seen as a way to kind of break the hold of the church a little bit. Because the whole point really is going to be anti-clerical, again, that the church has fallen and that they are not righteous, and therefore they don't really deserve to be holding on to all the stuff they got. Yes. Henry VIII, of course, will take that to its full extreme, and he will just take all the stuff for the crown and shut everybody down. Um, but Wycliffe, yes, he's, he gets it out here. So, um, Shakespeare fans will appreciate the fact that as Wycliffe starts to get into trouble, one of the people who protects him is John of Gaunt, the Duke of Lancaster. Oh. Yes. Um, very helpful. Yes, very helpful. So, um, here we are, right? Wycliffe is occasionally getting in trouble, but he manages to get out of it. Um, in 1377, uh, Pope Gregory the Eleventh. Um, is going to publish a list of errors. Um, I think 18 errors in Wycliffe's work. Um, Wycliffe is not going to care. Um, he <laughs> denounces monastic life. He thinks monks have strayed from the ascetic ideal. Um, obviously anyone who's going to end up reading Chaucer later. <laughs> um, I mean, Chaucer's writing a lot of this actually around, I mean, around this time, of course. Um, but yeah, the monks in Chaucer are, I mean, whatever. The monk is, yeah, famously terrible, 
as is the friar, famously terrible. So, um, yeah. And Wycliffe will also go after the friars. He thinks they're practicing a sort of private religion, right? Um, this is where he is going to sort of go with this idea, like the Waldensians in a lot of ways, right? That preaching should be sort of in the community. You should be, it's communal. This church should be communal. And that friars have s- sort of segregated themselves from the communal church, right? They're not out there helping people. You know, Chaucer, um, the friar is the um, only incubus around. <laughs> um, anyway, so women walking home, right, should be afraid of an incubus because the only one around is the, the friar hiding in the bushes. Yeah. Anyway, so um, so that's Chaucer writing, right? So all of this is really in the air, but Wycliffe is taking this, you know, to the next level. Um, okay, he is also going to condemn pilgrimages. We get, of course, Canterbury Tales. Um, I'm just comparing this to Chaucer, just right yes. to give us a reminder of the fact that Chaucer writing all this, he's going to stay on the general right side of of orthodoxy. Mm-hmm. He's going to ultimately get in trouble because his king is going to get deposed and stuff. But um, at the same time, right, all of this satire, it's really, this is a time that is ripe for all of this. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. So Wycliffe condemns pilgrimage. Um indulgences, pardons, the worship of images, right? Icons, of course. Um, and prayers for the dead. So we're back kind of to this idea of, it's not so much about purgatory specifically, but the idea that praying for the dead, the whole point was sort of that prayers for the dead help move them through purgatory faster up to heaven. Okay. Um, and Michael was basically like, that's ridiculous nonsense. Like, you know, if you've been a bad person, it's going to take you however long it's going to take you. Right. Mm -hmm. Like you go to hell or you go to heaven. um, And that's that's on you as a person. And other people. Yeah, it's sad. Like other people might love you, but (laughs) you praying for them isn't going to get them out of whatever. Um, Okay, so that's a big one. Um, Also, of course, this is a huge problem for the church because of the money people give. Right. They give huge amounts of money or even just tiny amounts, whatever they can afford um, to have people say prayers, you know, to have the monks or whoever say prayers for their loved ones to get them out of purgatory faster. Mm-hmm. Um, Isn't it a so, thing you could have a mass said for people? Oh, gosh, yes. I mean, people would endow, you know, masses to be said for the next hundred mm-hmm. years for, yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember reading some books where there was a guy and he, you know, kills someone in a duel and then he has <laughs> mass said for them. And Well, that's and nice. Is, you know, yeah. They died violently, so they're going to need it, yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But yes, so um, so obviously, right, that is striking the church where it hurts in the money books there. Um, yeah, so, it so was all of like the, the penny you put in the box to get the candle to write right. for your dead relative, too. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, and you also that you wouldn't do that for saints, right, in front of an image. Um, and indulgences, right? Again, you pay for... And, of course, Chaucer makes one of this pardons the partner. Oh, my God. I mean, he's a fantastic character, but a horrific person. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that you shouldn't pay for pardons and indulgences, that these are these are not things that Wycliffe likes. These are things that Protestantism is definitely going to not like. Um, yeah. So he, he goes with all this stuff. Yeah. Right? Um, and, yeah, that, you know, you shouldn't be able to, like, murder someone and then pay to you know, yeah, anyway. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's the reverse of, like, this guy at least did the mess for the guy he killed. Anyway. Um, okay, so Wycliffe, as with, you know, some of the previous ones we've seen, right, feels that the world has declined from the days of apostolic poverty. Um, everything's basically gone to poop, we could say. And so, 
he's trying to help fix it, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and he thinks another thing, right? One of the reasons he's against all this stuff, it's not just that all the money then goes to the church, um, but that he doesn't think any of these practices are justified by scripture, right? So he he doesn't quite go like it's only in scripture the way some modern Protestant sects believe. It's not that, you know, he definitely, he reads like the church fathers and the patristic writings, but he does feel like a practice has to be justified by scripture. Sure. And all this extra stuff, right? The indulgence of the pardons and the prayers and all that, none of that is in scripture. So his sort of- certainly don't recall any story where Jesus says something like, if you give me 20 bucks, I'll forgive your sins. Right, exactly. Or something. <laughs> yes. <laughs> right. That's a line that is missing in the version we have. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yes, Wycliffe was not was not into that. Um, so, all right. Um, the next big thing, <laughs> uh, I mean, all of that stuff is all stuff that we're used to. But one of the other big, big things, right, is that he feels the true church is headed by Christ alone and not the Pope. Um, and so here we're getting a little bit, a little bit, we're, we are moving towards what will become kind of the Protestant mm-hmm. um, belief that people have an individual relationship with God. You could see the Pope maybe having a problem with this. Yes. Right. Um, the, idea, the idea isn't just that you don't need the hierarchy, but that like they aren't, they aren't the true church. <laughs> yeah. Um, that Christ is the head of the true church. Um, and the ecclesiastical hierarchy is only sort of provisionally connected to it. Right. So um, he didn't fully say like it should all, all disappear necessarily, but that it's not, it's not the real church. They're only useful in as much as they can do certain things like confession or stuff like that. That is still mm-hmm. important. <laughs> right. Um, anything, anything that he believed was still important. Right. Yeah. You know, there's a reason. Um, but of course, again, you do have this sense of the um, clergy doing it need to be righteous, right? Um, okay, so that's a huge part of it. Um, and he felt also, of course, that um, all of this stuff that they have, that this was a huge part of the problem, because it's preventing the clergy who are who are in the church, who are good clergy, it's preventing them from sort of following apostolic poverty. Right. Because there's all this other stuff they're supposed to do that they shouldn't be having to worry about. And there's all this money they have <laughs> that they shouldn't be having. <laughs> right. All this stuff they own that they probably shouldn't be owning. Um, anyway. And so his idea was that a secular authority should be in charge of everything, including the church. A secular authority? To break up the power. Okay. Yes. Yes. That secular authority. And you can see why secular authorities protected him. Yeah. Right? Um, yeah, secular authority should be in charge um, because the church shouldn't have any temporal power, only spiritual power. Um, and that's, you know, a little bit what's happened now, except, of course, the Vatican is still the Vatican. But right. Um, but that idea that churches are liable to the places where they are. So, for example, um, you know, if there's alleged abuse that that city or jurisdiction can then move against the church, right? And can sue right. the church. Like that. Um, yeah, so so that's, it's closer to sort of what Wycliffe thought. Um, not completely, but yeah, this is a, this is a sort of general sense. Um, also, he felt that God did not institute the papacy, that Constantine did. <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay. And then, of course, most famously, he is against transubstantiation, as we discussed, and that's, um, this is the thing, it comes later. 
Um, so he, he, all of this other stuff he's preaching and he's protected and all this stuff. And then finally, this is sort of the big one he comes out with <laughs> nearer the end of his life. And, um, that one where he's like, look, it's, it still tastes like, it's still wine and bread. Um, and so the idea, of course, in transubstantiation, that the sort of the physical substance, right, the ex- sort of accidents, the sensible qualities, mm-hmm. um, that that's just sort of the disguise, right? Um, and Wycliffe was like, no, if it <laughs> if it walks like a duck and it talks like a duck, then it sure it's it right. If it tastes like bread, then it's still bread, right? It's symbolic. It's not real. Um, all right, that is the point at which ecclesiastical authorities in Oxford and so on decide to kind of disappear from him. <laughs> right. Hmm. Wow. People in England, even the ecclesiastical forces in England, pretty much everyone has kind of been behind him up to this point. But at that point, Oxford and the various, they're like, mm, that that was a step too far for the religious authorities. Um, not necessarily for the secular authorities, but for the religious authorities, that was a step too far, right? Transubstantiation was the step that got him. Hmm. So that's the point that got him in trouble, cost him his support. The other thing that happens, though, in England, in 1381, um, the Peasants' Revolt. This is a big thing. It's a the big old, I mean, the Peasants' Revolt. So it's a big labor revolt. Richard II is king. Um, there are a lot of things behind it. But yeah, basically, it's a big old labor revolt. Um, but one of the leaders is the sort of radical priest, um, John Ball, um, sort of circa 1338-ish, maybe, um, to 1381. So he is a contemporary of Wycliffe. And he had been preaching a lot of these ideas probably even before he'd heard of Wycliffe. But Wycliffe then, of course, becomes kind of the lead spokesperson for these ideas. So Ball is then considered a lollard, and his beliefs are seen as part of what drive the Peasants' Revolt. So the Peasants' Revolt is then seen as kind of, have, in many ways, having been led by or attached to or driven by, in some way, lollardy uh, because of John Ball. Um, and this then, of course, also costs a lot of support for Wycliffe, right? Um, so, uh, in 1382, the Archbishop of Canterbury, um, convenes a synod that condemns a chunk, 24, I think, of Wycliffe's propositions. Um, but Wycliffe is allowed to retire to his parish and die of natural causes. So he's Hmm. buried in the churchyard of his parish in 1384 when he dies. Um, however... Postscript. Uh, in 1428, the Bishop of Lincoln, obeying essentially the Council of Constance in, in 1415, is going to convene to end the papal schism, which it does do. Uh, that's the Avignon papacy and all that. Um, but it's also going to condemn Wycliffe um, and Jan Hus and the Hussites, who we'll talk about next time. Um, and all of their followers. And so one of the things that ends up happening <laughs> because of all the stuff that goes on there, um, is that in 1428, I think, um, the Bishop of Lincoln exhumes Wycliffe's body, burns it, and has the ashes like tossed into the river. Whoops. Okay. Yeah. Um, like sort of in retrospect that he's required mm-hmm. to have, you know, but at the time, <laughs> Wycliffe is allowed to die of natural causes and he's buried in the churchyard. Yeah. So, Good for him. And of course, at the time, it's also worth pointing out that sometimes you got dug up anyway and moved to a charnel house. So, you know, it's the burning that, that does it mm-hmm. and the scattering of the ashes. But, you know, I mean, Protestants do that stuff nowadays. So, meh. He's okay. Um, anyway, it's unclear if he gave, if he supported in, in a sort of literal sense, like if he actually helped out in any way 
with the English translation of the Bible that bears his name. Okay. Um, so the English, it's the English translation of the Vulgate, of course. So the Vulgate is the Latin version of the Bible. <laughs> so there's the English translation of the Vulgate um, is undertaken by Wycliffe's followers at Oxford and his parish after his death, and it becomes known as the Wycliffeite Bible. Okay. Um, he certainly supported vernacular translations, but it's it's unclear if he sort of was aware or gave any sort of real help. He certainly didn't help translate, but did he in any way support this effort or did mm-hmm. it really kind of all happen as he was sick? Because he had a stroke and stuff, I think, before he died. And so d- was he really aware of it? But certainly it's done by his followers in his name. Um, his followers then become known as Lollards. This is the term that is thrown around for them. Um, and they are condemned. They are executed whenever possible, uh, but they're never fully stamped out. So they absolutely do survive in sort of various forms, um, somewhat changed in various ways. But nonetheless, um, mm-hmm. people who would probably still consider themselves followers of Wycliffe do survive to see England become Protestant. That being said, uh, in 1401, Parliament, this is England, of course, right? Parliament passes an edict, um, de heretico, Comberendo on the burning of heretics um, that is supported by King Henry IV. Um, and then famously, famously begun in 1407 and sort of finished, proclaimed, whatever, um, promulgated, I don't know, in 1409, um, the Constitutions of Arundel, that the Archbishop of Canterbury, Thomas Arundel, he creates this sort of big list of stuff that is known as the Constitutions of Arundel. And it's basically aimed at all sort of aspects of Lollardy, including, and this is the important part, (laughs) the production of English translations of the Bible and biblical texts. Um, So the Constitutions of Arundel become really famous because they are sort of very, right, all the things that you can't do, that he is against, right, that are considered uh, aspects of Lollardy. But the one that people talk about kind of the most today really is the this one about vernacular translations because although we had said before like they're never explicitly vernacular translations are not explicitly condemned by the larger church the constitutions of arundel in england um nicholas watson has argued so he's got for example an article censorship and cultural change in late medieval england vernacular theology the oxford translation debate and arundel's constitutions of 1409 (laughs) that's the title um in speculum 1995. Speculum issue 70. Volume 70. Whatever. 1995. Um, So Watson argues um, that this basically created an incredibly influential censorship of vernacular texts and vernacular theology in general. That this put a huge chill kind of in England on vernacular not just vernacular translations of the Bible, but because of the way it's stated, kind of, or biblical texts, that just vernacular translations, vernacular texts, and even vernacular theology overall, that this was a really big pivot point in England. Which is why, when you get eventually to the King James Bible, there's this sense, particularly for people who study England, you'll frequently hear this idea that somehow vernacular texts weren't allowed, or vernacular Mm -hmm. things weren't allowed. And that's not actually true, right? The wider church never bans them, but the constitutions of Arundel really in England put this big freeze on. Um, and so that, so the kind of what happens because of that. Um, and it's definitely been argued that that is a, it has a huge effect on, on what goes on in England. Um, so why, you know, the King James Bible ultimately is such a huge event 
Um, and of course, is an extraordinary translation as well, <laughs> in many ways. Right. Um, but the idea that that couldn't exist sort of until Protestantism, right? This, this is all kind of specific to England. Um, anyway, so final thoughts. Um, Lollardy, as I said, sticks around, and the fear of it sticks around. So, for example, Marjorie Kemp is accused of Lollardy, um, even though she clearly isn't a Lollard. She has incredibly orthodox beliefs, but she is a woman who is teaching, she says. Teaching. <laughs> right? Not preaching, but teaching. And that alone, you can see how that is enough to maybe get her accused of stuff, which she sure. is. Um, so, the, so the fear of Lollardy lives on. It's never, as I said, completely stamped out. Um, you also have, again, we're going to return sort of to Shakespeare here. Uh, Sir John Oldcastle, who was a real knight. <laughs> um, Oldcastle's revolt in 1414. Um, Sir John Oldcastle is a follower of Wycliffe. Um, he leads a revolt, ultimately. He had been, you know, a companion of Henry V. Um, and for a long time, Henry V doesn't want to do anything against him. But then he leads this revolt, so that is the end of that. Um, but then he goes into hiding. <laughs> Um, and he's not found until 1417, uh, and then he's executed. Uh, so that's Old Castle's Revolt. Oh. And after that, um, Lollardy is not obvious among the sort of, um, I guess, I don't know, we could say in quotes, upper classes, which is to say that it, it seems to stick mostly to maybe, I mean, you know, Marjorie Kemp's sort of merchants, I guess. Um, Marjorie Kemp is kind of 1373 circa, uh, to circa 1440. Um, but sort of the merchants or, you know, but people, sort of ordinary people, basically. Yeah. Um, you know, it's it's still running around. And again, Marjorie Kemp is not a Lollard. She's not a Lollard, but accused of it. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, so sort of um, it sticks around kind of in the populace, but not really in the upper classes. Remember Cathars, there are a lot of upper classes who did attach there. That doesn't end up after, the, after Old Castle's revolt. That's not really a thing in England so much. Um, yeah, so it sticks around in England, but that is not to say, of course, that, you know, when England does end up converting, it's a huge shock to the system, right? The fact that they've had this proto-Protestant heresy running around, and there are people who believe it, and there certainly are people, definitely, who want to be Protestant by the time that happens in England. There are also many, many people who definitely do not want to be, right? So, um, that's, this is in no way to say that that what Henry did was gradual or something, or that that was the <laughs> ultimate end point. Yeah. No, no, no. No, no, definitely not. Whew. All right, so I guess we're going to have to save Jan Hus probably for next time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, I think so. Yes, so next time we'll talk about him and maybe some other fun stuff that happens. Like, maybe we'll actually talk a little bit about Luther. I wasn't going to talk about him, but we might as well. Cause, yeah, he's a uh, cool guy. Yeah, and also because Jan Hus, speaking of Czech, right, he's bo this is Bohemia, um, a lot of it's going to be politics about versus Germany. So, you know, cool. we might as well start start some talking. Yeah. All right. I have one Yay. piece of trivia, which yes. is that uh, Wycliffe Jean of the Fugees oh my God, yes. is named <laughs> yes. for John Wycliffe. Oh, my gosh. Yes. That is 100% fantastic piece of trivia. There you go. Awesome. So this is still extremely relevant. Yay! Uh, to our world. <laughs> yes. That is so okay. great. Yeah. Yes. Yep. But yeah, and of course, oh, and we should mention, right, in um, 
this is why Hale says my old lad of the castle at one point. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, Shakespeare decided not to take that comment out, even though the pun no longer made sense. Aha! <laughs> when he changed his name. Okay. But yeah, Shakespeare was originally going to name, I mean, it was John Oldcastle was the point. That's who that was. Mm-hmm. But, and apparently the family must have complained. And at this point, England is Protestant. So Oldcastle was a martyr, a Protestant yeah. martyr at this point. Um, and so the family, I mean, it's hard. Nobody really knows. But, you know, someone presumably said something to Shakespeare, like, could you maybe not use our martyr as whatever? And so he changed it to John Falstaff. Sir John Fastolf was also a real dude. Um, but, you know, the character is very clearly based on this idea of the companion of the of Hal, who then sort of uh, grows apart from him, which was the story of, of Old Castle. Um, anyway, yep. Cool. cool. Yay! Thinking of uh, Falstaff as a um, martyr. I know. Is, but he kind I of mean, is in the end, but not to Protestantism, yeah. but just no. to, you know, <laughs> Shakespearean tragedy. Yes. Oh, chimes at midnight. Orson Welles. Well, yeah. Yay. Sometimes uh, dramatic necessity, unfortunately. Yes, yes. But he had a good run. He was in, in a bunch of plays. Like Oh, he's in more than pretty much... Four? Yeah, which is as yeah. many as anyone is in. Um, Margaret is also in the four. No. Margaret's in three. Hal only gets to be in three. Yeah, Margaret's in three. And but yeah. Bolingbroke is in well, three. Yeah, well, Falstaff is in... Yeah, because he gets um, Merry Wives. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> is the is the difference. But he's he's in he's actually only in three, which is about as yeah. I don't think anyone's yeah. in four, but he's actually but he's mentioned in Henry V, right? But not yeah. He sort of dies off stage. He dies off stage, but it's an important scene, yeah. so it it does kind of count as as yeah. So he gets he gets slightly more than anyone else does. Yeah. Arguably. For that reason, yes. <laughs> all <Yay>. right. <laughs> cool. So on that note, um, thank you all for joining us. And Jesse, thanks for talking to me. Yay. Um, anybody who's interested in details on the stuff we discussed, references, sometimes uh, slight corrections, can check the show notes, um, which are also available on our website at askofadivalist.com. You can also use the contact us form there to send us questions. You can email us at questions at askamedievalist.com. You can find us on Facebook and you can tweet at us at askamedievalist. I, I think that's everything. So uh, we'll be back next time to talk about more heretical things. And until then, everybody keep it medieval. Ask a Medievalist is a production of This Can't Be That Hard Studios and is not endorsed, acknowledged, or condoned by Virginia Commonwealth University or any of its constituent departments. Our theme music is Veni Veni Venias from Carmina Burana by Carl Orff, performed by the MIT Concert Choir and licensed under a Creative Commons attributional non-commercial license version 3.0. If you enjoyed our podcast, please rate us and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, why not tell a friend? For more on today's topic, including sources, annotations, and corrections, visit our website at www.askamedievalist.com. And if you have questions, feel free to drop us an email at questions at askamedievalist.com. <laughs>